cross. Would you take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the 14th chapter. And I want to bring a message this morning entitled, Are You All In? Are You All In? Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, but actually what we're going to do is back up and set the context by beginning our reading in verse 15. So if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke 14, beginning in verse 15, are you all in? When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, we thank you for the message of this text. We see here the cost that is involved in naming the name of Christ and being a follower of the Lord Jesus. 
God, we know that there are many challenges to life, trials and tribulations that the saints go through. In the midst of it all, you've called us to be a holy people and to be salt and light. And you've cautioned us that our Christian life is measured by more than simply our words. Our life testifies to the validity of our words. Or our life can negate our words. Lord, help us to understand as your people, the bride of Christ in this culture today, that there's a cross to carry. There's a denial to make. You're calling us to live lives of consecration and devotion till Jesus comes. And not just begin well, but finish well. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts today. That you would use these words out of Luke 14. Bring challenge. Bring conviction. Bring the transformation that only your Holy Spirit can do. All to your honor and glory we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Folks the buzz all week long. You know what the buzz has been right? The buzz on Wall Street has been what? Facebook. Going public Friday morning. The IPO was offered at $38 a share. Some of you probably brought, uh, bought multiple shares. You know what really amazed me? What amazed me was to read that uh, Facebook now is valued uh, at, a, at a greater value than even Ford Motor Company and General Motors combined. It's amazing. Now, of course, we're speaking of temporal investments uh, there, and we must remember that while we're to be good stewards of worldly resources, Jesus tells us that we're to lay up our treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust does corrupt or thieves break in and steal. Jesus had a profound and penetrating way of looking beyond the material and the temporal and pointing his followers to the eternal. Now folks, we see in this passage today that Jesus wants his followers to be all in. We're not to tiptoe up to the edge and merely experiment with being a Christian. We see in this text that the call to follow Christ is a very challenging call. And indeed, it is not for the faint of heart. Now, in light of what Jesus has said in the parable preceding this one, he wants the issue of following him to be crystal clear. The call to salvation is a call to whosoever will. The host of the banquet wanted his room full. He wanted his table full. That reminds me of 2 Peter 3, 9 where it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
And so the call to salvation is a call to whosoever will. In Isaiah 55, 1, the Bible says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. But while it is for whosoever will, Jesus wants those who respond to consider the cost. You see, the one who desires to follow Christ but is not ready to give up his life of sin is not really ready to be a believer. 1 John 1.6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The one who desires to follow Christ but is not ready to walk in his footsteps and be conformed to the image of Christ likewise is not truly ready to be a disciple. 1 John 2.6 says the one who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk in the same manner as he walked. When we give people the impression that easy believism is okay, we're doing something that the Lord Jesus was never ever willing to do. We're lowering the standard. Worse yet, we find ourselves to be false witnesses because we're painting a portrait of Christianity that Jesus was never willing to paint. I want you to listen to what was said about the early Christians. This is a letter that comes off the pages of church history. In the letter to Diognetus, which dates back to the 2nd century AD, the writer describes a strange people who are in the world but not of the world. And he says, and I quote, Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They follow the local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. Every foreign country is to them as their native country and every native land is a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else but they do not kill their unwanted young. They offer a shared table but not a shared bed. They're passing their days on earth but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone and are yet persecuted by all. They're put to death and gain life. They're poor and yet they make many rich. They're dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened and yet they're cleared and exalted. They're mocked. And they bless in return. They're treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers when punished. They rejoice as if being given new life. They're attacked by Jews as aliens and persecuted by Greeks. Yet those 
who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. Folks, isn't that a wonderful testimony of the early Christians? The writer is describing what their lives were like. Surely we would have to say that he's describing a group of people here who indeed were all in. And Jesus is challenging us in Luke chapter 14 to look at our lives and to be all in. And what's it going to look like when we're all in? What's going to characterize our lives? Well, first of all this morning from verses 25 to 26, I want you to see the dominating love. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and child and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now folks, you know what I find interesting? What I find interesting is when the crowds came to Jesus... He had a unique way, oftentimes, of thinning the ranks. I think of that occasion where the Bible says they were pressing in on him to such a degree that he had to get out in a boat and push off from the shore because of the way they were pressing in on him there at the edge of the water. It's like when Jesus was going about doing his miracles and teaching and telling parables and doing all the wonderful things that he did when all the the thousands of people multiplied and came to him Jesus would turn to them and he would deliberately try to thin the ranks. That's what he's doing here. He's thinning the ranks. Now boy, isn't that just the opposite of what we do today? In church growth, everybody says, you know, in this seeker movement, you got to get a crowd and don't dare ever say anything that might offend somebody. You know, keep everything nice and short and sweet and pleasant. But not Jesus. I think of that occasion where the rich young ruler came to Jesus. I mean, after all, who wouldn't want the rich young ruler in their congregation? I mean, the guy's a ruler. He's powerful. He's got prestige. And not only that, but the Bible says he was rich. I mean, just think of everything he could do for your ministry. And yet Jesus looked at him. Now Jesus didn't say this to everybody, but he did to this man because this man's money was his idol. He said, young man, what you need to do is go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. And the Bible says that the young man would not do that. And so he turned away sad. We'd run after him. Oh, come back, please. I didn't mean it. Jesus didn't do that. He let him go. In Luke 9, somebody said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus turned to him and said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you follow me, you may not have anywhere in this world to lay your head either. Another guy said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go home and bury my parents. 
In other words, what he was saying is, let me go home and uh, while my parents are aging, I'm going to take care of them and all the responsibilities of my social life back home. And when everybody and family kind of dies off and I get them buried and I'm beyond all my responsibilities, then, Lord, I'll come and follow you at that point sometime out there in the future. And Jesus said, no, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. Still somebody else said, let me go home and tell everybody else uh, goodbye first. Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Again in Luke 14, that's what Jesus is doing. He looks at the crowd and it's like he very intentionally tries to drive some of them away. And I think the reason is so that nobody could ever say that Jesus Christ called them based on false pretense that it was going to be easy. Now folks, to be all in means that Jesus must take priority over every relationship. That's what he's saying in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I want you to notice the relationships Jesus mentions here by noticing the relationships that he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention people that we would measure as being mere acquaintances. The woman at the checkout counter at Food Line or Harris Teeter, the the mailman who drops off your mail every day and you might speak to him or her about once a month. People like that that you don't really rub shoulders with and you don't really know. Jesus is not bringing that selection of people up here. Notice who he's bringing up here. He is bringing up the most intimate relationships that we have. Father, mother, uh, brother, sister, husband, wife, even your own life. And by mentioning our own life, I want you to remember what Satan said to God in the book of Job when God said, see Satan, Job still loves me after everything that I've put him through. Satan said to God, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his own flesh. Allow me to put forth my hand and touch his flesh and he'll curse you to your face. Now for most people, as it was proved, not in the case of Job, even though Satan is a deceiver and a liar, there's an element of truth in what he said there. Most people will do just about anything to preserve their own life. But Jesus says you must be willing to give up your life to follow me. Now folks, I want us to explore further what Jesus is saying because to some people these verses present an enigma at best, and at worst, a contradiction of other scripture. Does Jesus really want me to hate my father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister? How about the fifth commandment that says I'm to honor my father and mother? How about the second greatest commandment given in Matthew 22 to love your neighbor as yourself? How about in 1 John where it says he who does not love the brethren abides in death? Now, don't all those verses tell me I'm supposed to love? Well, yes. 
Folks, what we, what we need to do, we need to understand this verse in, in light of the Hebrew way of thinking. This is a Hebrew idiom that Jesus is giving here. Hate was oftentimes used in a comparison sense. I'll give you an example out of the Old Testament. There was Jacob and Esau. The Bible says that God loved Esau. I mean, I loved Jacob but hated Esau. And what the scripture goes on to explain there is God chose. He showed preference to Jacob over Esau. He didn't hate Esau because he went on to even provide for Esau's future and his descendants. And then, and then also in the Old Testament, the Bible speaks of God loving Israel and hating the other nations. But what, what it goes on to, to define more fully about that is God set his affections on Israel as his chosen people. But he told them that they were to be a shining light to the other nations so the other nations would be drawn to Israel's God. Why? Because God also desired a relationship with the other nations. And so hate in the sense of comparison. What Jesus is saying is that when all the relationships of our lives are laid on the table, it doesn't matter how dear and precious those relationships may be to us, if we're truly His, if we're truly followers of Him, He's got to take priority over everybody else. You look at the bulletin today and you, and you see on the front page those college graduates. Now what would we assume is going to happen in the lives of most of those college graduates? What's sort of the next phase of life usually? Marriage, right? A young lady ought to be looking for a man who says, Honey, when he proposes to her, he says, Honey, will you... Will you be number two in my life? Because Jesus is number one. Young ladies, look for a man who will say, Don't look for a man who says, You're going to be number one in my life because that will just mess everything up. Look for a man who says, You'll be number two in my life because Jesus Christ is first. That's how we're to measure our relationships Compared to our love for him, it's as though every other relationship is a hatred. Paul says in the book of Colossians that he himself might come to have the preeminence in everything. We must choose him above all. Does that describe you this morning? Do you desire to put Jesus Christ ahead of husband, wife, child, father, mother, brother, sister? If that doesn't describe you, either you are not ready yet to be born again and to be a follower of Jesus Christ, or if you are born again, something has happened and you've taken your eyes off of the true focus in life God wants you to have. But you see, course corrections in life are also a sign of true discipleship, right? Folks, wouldn't it be grand? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if the moment we gave our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ, everything after that, we just lived perfectly, 
We always made the right choices. We always had the right affections. We always had the right priorities. And we always did the right thing. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But that's not life, is it? We go through life and we battle and struggle just like Paul in Romans 7 where Paul said the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. The things that I, that, that I do want to do, I don't end up doing those things. Oh, wretched man that I am. And he, and he describes there this battle inside of us that all of us can identify with because you see, believers have two natures now. Not just the old nature, but we have the new nature. The, the old nature is not eradicated yet. We still battle against that old man day after day after day. That's why Romans 6 says as believers we're to evaluate our lives and every day we're to lay our lives before God and instead of presenting our members as instruments to unrighteousness we're to present our members as instruments to righteousness. There's this battle going on in us. But you know what a true disciple of Jesus Christ does? When the Word of God confronts us, whether it's our worldview, whether it's the way we talk or think or act or whatever we do, when the Word of God confronts us and we find ourselves out of conformity to the will of God, what do we do? We allow Him to lead us through those course corrections. Every life is like this treasure in the making. Uh, take, take this piece of wood. I think of Dr. Willis and some of those beautiful uh, pieces of wood he makes. But he starts with that rough wood and he, and he sands it down. And he, and he cuts it here and there. And he cuts off all the right edges. And he ends up with something over time that's beautiful. A beautiful vessel. That's how life is. This discipleship process over the course of time, a true disciple doesn't resist that, but a true disciple of Jesus Christ, somebody who is really following Christ says, I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to take the Word of God and conform me to the image of Christ. Now somebody who says they're a Christian, but says, no, I don't want any part of that. I'm going to live my life however I want to, probably is a false disciple. Because a true disciple cherishes that honing process. Jesus is saying here, you must count the cost. He's to be Lord of our lives. If he's not number one in our relationships, how then can we say he's truly Lord? Now folks, the paradox of putting Jesus first ahead of all other relationships is that we end up loving them more and loving them the way we were supposed to all along. You take a man who follows Christ and he's going to be able to obey under the help of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be able to obey Ephesians 5.25 where it says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. A parent's going to be able to love their child properly. A, a, a child's going to be able to respect and honor and love their parents properly. Isn't that a unique thing about Christianity? When we lay all of our relationships at the feet of Jesus and say, Okay, Christ, you're going to be first. And so I put my marriage, I put my home life, I put my friendships, I put my business associates all at your feet. He gives them back to us and they're more beautiful than ever before. 
Isn't it great how he does that? Second thing I want you to notice, the foundational sacrifice. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now this verse picks up on the last part of verse 26 about hating our own life. That brings up a question too, right? Is it wrong to love ourselves? No, because Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus assumed that we'd love ourselves. There's this drive in every one of us towards self-preservation. If it were not, we would destroy ourselves. In fact, it's so sad today to see the suicide rates. I think of the Kennedy woman this past week. Look at teenagers today. Did you realize that among teenagers today, suicide now is the leading cause of death along with accidents? When people today want to destroy themselves, we put them in the hospital or we try to get them help. But we even have to choose Christ over our own life. When we do that, we suddenly find that our own life has greater significance. And so what's the challenge there? Well, it's that we have to carry our own cross. A cross today is a shiny, pretty necklace most often that people wear around their neck. Or some pretty painting that we put on the wall of our home. But folks, a cross in Jesus' day was an ugly, cruel thing. It was an instrument of of torture and death. And so Christ is saying here that if I'm going to follow Him, I've got to die to myself. Now, what's that mean? Does it mean that I might literally have to die? Well, yeah, one day you and I might be called on to do that at some point in the future. The early disciples certainly gave their lives. Uh, Tradition says James the brother of Jesus and James the son of Zebedee were killed by mobs in Jerusalem. Matthew was run through with a sword in Ethiopia. Philip was hanged in Greece. Bartholomew was slain alive in Armenia. Andrew was crucified in Achaia and Thomas was killed with a lance in East India. Thaddeus was shot with arrows. Simon the Zealot was crucified by the Persians. Peter was crucified upside down by the Romans. And the Apostle John died alone, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. So you and I might be called upon uh, someday to pay the ultimate sacrifice with our very life. What if that day came? What if that day was tomorrow? Is your love of Christ so profound that you would be willing to make that foundational sacrifice of even laying down your life in death? Some years ago I told you an illustration, great illustration, uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy wrote about. He described this scene, a true scene that happened uh, back in the days of the Iron Curtain. And there was this underground church in one of these communist nations. And, and, and this underground church, everybody was meeting in worship one morning, one Sunday morning, when all of a sudden these communist soldiers burst through the door, slammed the doors behind them and locked them. And they stood there with their machine guns and all their other military weapons. 
And those communist soldiers looked at those Christians gathered in that church and they said, everybody who does not right now renounce your faith in Jesus Christ and leave this place, we're going to kill you. Well, Kennedy said, as the description of that story went, he said, most of the church was bailing out windows and doors, the closest exit they could get to. Man, they were just scattering and running. But there was this one group of people who would not budge. And the soldiers said to them, we said, if you do not renounce your faith in Jesus Christ right now and leave this place, we're going to kill you on the spot. They would not budge. The soldiers took their weapons, walked up to the altar, laid their weapons on the altar, turned around and faced that group and said, Brethren, we've met to worship. We just wanted to get rid of the hypocrites first. (laughs) What would you do in a scenario like that? Would you be willing to lay down your life for Christ? But for now, that's not what Jesus is asking for. Jesus is asking for you and and me to die to self and live for Him. Are you willing to do that? Will you put Jesus' desires and purposes for your life ahead of your own? Again, I think of these college grads. Do you want to be a doctor? Jesus might want you to be a doctor too, but have you consulted him? Do you want to be an engineer? Jesus may want you to be an engineer. After all, I mean, he wants disciples in every field, everywhere. We heard from Scott Zook, Scott and Melissa Zook, this past Wednesday night. Scott was an IT specialist in the business world. And he sensed God calling him to the mission field. Not as a preacher. You see, a lot of people are on the mission field today. They're not preachers, but they're on the mission field. Scott sensed that God wanted him to use his IT skills on the mission field. And so he's in, uh, he's, he's in Tanzania in Uganda uh, as an IT specialist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. The point is, have you sought the will of God for your life? What does Christ want for you? What if you're already a doctor, lawyer, teacher, engineer? Are you willing to let all that go? Lay it down at the feet of Jesus and go next month to the mission field if if God called you. Now if not, then how could we claim that we're counting the cost and following Jesus? Have you professed Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? What does Lordship mean? It means He's the boss of your life. As the boss of your life, He has the right. The Bible says you and I are bought with a price, not silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can redirect your life or my life anytime He so chooses. If He's our Lord. Right? Isn't that what lordship means? Is your will surrendered to his will? That's the foundational sacrifice. I've laid it on the line. I'm, I'm willing to die for him. I'm willing to live for him. 
Third thing I want you to see this morning is the deliberate calculation. Look beginning at verse 28. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now in this section of the passage, Jesus is making an all-out appeal. He's drawing the net. He's emphasizing that you really have to sit down and think about being his followers. There's a cost involved. Don't just say you're a Christian, count the cost. If you can't pay the price, if you're not willing to count the cost, Christ is saying don't pretend. And he gives two analogies here to underscore this. One is of a man building a tower. I guarantee you any careful builder first of all sits down and he analyzes all the cost. He puts all the budgets out there on the table and analyzes whether or not he's really able to complete this project. You know what a lot of people do in the heat of emotion? A lot of people in the heat of emotion say, I want to follow Jesus. But they never follow through with it. I cannot even begin to count all the people who have come, come to me through the years for counseling whose lives at, the, at that moment in time were a wreck. Their husband was leaving them. Their wife was leaving them. Their kids were into drugs. They were about to lose their job and maybe lose everything. And they promised to make all kinds of changes. Next week at the altar you see them bawling like a baby. And you're pulling for them. You're praying for them. I mean their life life is a mess. But you know what I've seen so often? Things get better. All of a sudden, the moment of crisis is gone and life is good again and life is back to normal. So you know what? They go right back to what life was all about. Decisions made in the heat of emotion like that, almost all, I can guarantee you, I've seen people at the altar all emotional and all, and and me knowing there's some major, major crisis going on in their life. Almost always, they tend not to follow through with it. Boy, I'm pulling for them. I got to be honest with you about, and I, boy, I am so glad to be proved wrong. I'm so tickled dead. Ten years ago, I was proved wrong. I think it's about ten years ago. I'll never forget the Sunday morning I was preaching and a man got up out of the balcony and walked around here with another man in the congregation. Came down here and stood down here and gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he had been accused of wrongdoing and he was in in jail, spent a night or two in jail accused of wrongdoing. 
by, by another employee. And later everything came out. Uh, he had not done that wrong. But he was accused of wrongdoing and ended up in jail. And in jail, God woke him up and got his attention. And boy, he was emotional. He got saved. And I got to be honest with you. I was sitting there thinking, I wonder if this will last. Well, praise God, 10 years later, it's still lasting. And Arliss Barber is a great encouragement to all of us. Amen. Jesus says you really got to give careful consideration to follow me. Don't start if you don't intend to finish. And then he gives the illustration about the king in battle. If you don't count the cost and not able to finish what you start, your judgment will be worse off in the long run than had you never even started. And he gives the analogy of salt. Salt that has lost its taste. You say, well, true salt can't lose its taste. It's a stable chemical compound, and it is. But you have to understand, back in Jesus' day, they gathered, they collected salt from around the Dead Sea. And oftentimes, it would be mixed with other minerals and so forth, and it looked like salt. But these... Uh, the, but uh, uh, the salt would be leached out and they'd have this powder. They thought it was the real thing, but it wasn't. Salt was such a valuable commodity to them back then. Romans, um, they called salt divine. They paid their soldiers in salt. It's where we get the term salary from. And also the phrase, he's not worth his salt. And these, this, this substance where the real thing had been washed out, it just looked like salt on the outside. Jesus said, you know what? It, it, in the final analysis, in the final judgment, it's discovered it's not the real thing, so it's cast out. And what Jesus is saying at the close of this when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him, let him hear, it's actually an invitation that's in the imperative. In the imperative tense. Jesus is saying you better see yourself in these analogies. Don't end up like this stuff that looked like salt but in the final judgment was not the real thing. This thing that looked real on the outside but when you really uncovered it and got down to business it wasn't there. There was no substance there. It wasn't really salt. People can say all day long, Jesus is Lord. Matthew 7, many will come to me, Jesus said in that day, saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and this and this? And And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus is saying, don't just look like the real thing. Be the real thing. And if you're going to be the real thing, you're going to be be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, he says, you've got to count the cost. I close with the tragic story. In 1845, Sir John Franklin and 138 officers and men embarked from England 
to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two ships. Each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and only a 12-day supply of coal. Now foolishly, instead of taking along additional coal and necessities for the unexpected, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ, china place settings, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware. The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. It was later learned from Eskimos that they'd seen some men pushing and pulling a wooden vessel across the ice at a place called Starvation Cove. The remains of the 35 men who had been dragging it were found at Terra Bay. The remains of 30 bodies were found in a tent on the ice. At Simpson Strait, three protruding wooden masts could be seen poking up through the ice. For 20 years, search parties recovered skeletons from all over the frozen sea. Accompanying one clump of frozen bodies were place settings of sterling silver flatware. Another search party found two skeletons in a boat on a sledge. They had hauled the boat 65 miles. With the two bodies, they found chocolate, guns, tea, and a great deal of table silver. Many miles south of these two was another skeleton alone. This was a frozen officer. The skeleton was in uniform, trousers and jackets of fine blue cloth edged with silk braid with sleeves slashed and bearing five covered buttons each. Over this uniform, the dead man had worn a blue overcoat with a black silk neckerchief. This was the French expedition. Sir John Franklin and 138 men perished because they underestimated the requirements of Arctic exploration. Jesus is telling us here, don't underestimate the requirements of belonging to him. It's as easy as a prayer of repentance and faith. But it better be backed up by a changed life. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. A life that has counted the cost. A life that is as determined to finish well as as it began well. Have you counted the cost? Are you all in? I want to invite somebody here today to come to faith in Christ. Come forward and say, Pastor, pray with me. I'm not born again. I'm religious, but I'm that profession. I'm that outside looking. The form of religion that 2 Peter 3 talks about, but denying the power thereof. I've got religion, but I'm not born again. Would you pray for me that the Spirit of the living God would do His work of salvation on my heart? For those of you who know the Spirit of God has done that work of salvation on your heart, 
Maybe you need to come to this altar this morning because since making that decision, you've been deceived and your eyes have been taken off the prize and you've allowed other things to get involved. Your passions and priorities and relationships aren't what they're supposed to be as a follower of Christ. You've not been counting the cost lately. Maybe you need to be at this altar saying, God, I know you did that work of redemption in my heart. But I sure have strayed. I sure have gotten off course. And Lord, I want to live my life as somebody who is all in. I don't want to tiptoe up to the edge. I want to be all in. Amen.